Welcome to the Lexington Public Library's Tales from the Kentucky Room podcast, where we discuss everything Lexington and Fayette County history. I'm Miriam, and in each episode of this podcast, we will feature a guest that will share a piece of local history. So thank you for tuning in and enjoy. Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining us. Today on the podcast, we have two guests from the League of Women Voters of Kentucky. Cindy Heine, who currently serves on the boards of both the League of Women Voters of Kentucky and League of Women Voters of Lexington, where she organizes candidate forums. She is also the liaison to the state legislature for the Kentucky League. We also have Dee Pregliasco, who is the first vice president of the League of Women Voters of Kentucky. She also serves with the Louisville chapter. So thank you for joining us, Dee and Cindy. Thank you for inviting us. Yes, thank you. To start off the podcast, I wanted to go into the history of the League of Women Voters for those that don't know much about the organization and talk a little bit about what you guys do. I'd be glad to talk about that. The League of Women Voters grew out of the suffrage movement, which, of course, started a long, long time ago in the 1840s, more specifically, and also the women's club movements, uh, both among whites and black women out of the 19th century. But certainly with the passage of the uh, 19th Amendment, finally, in August of, uh, that's when it was actually signed off on August of 1920, the leagues, what the league really wanted to do was to help women be civically engaged and particularly to help them in voting and what that meant. There are wonderful stories about the fact that, for example, women, they weren't sure what to do even about voting. The Louisville League was uh, fortunate to have the great-great-granddaughter of Elizabeth Caddy Stanton with us last August uh, at a special Women's Equality Day event. And she told the story about how her uh, grandmother talked about when she and then the great-grandmother, that first time they went to vote, they weren't sure, well, first off, where do we go? How do we do it? What do we do? Do we have to sign things? Obviously, very, very special. But that's the the history of the League because the idea was that we're going to have to educate women because they've been not only kept out of schools, kept out of jobs, kept from voting, but educate them about what their responsibility is as a citizen. So if you look at the league now, back then, but even now, part of our mission is not only do people understand that we register voters, but our goal also is to educate then voters about all of the varied and many issues that there are. And of course, as you said, this year is a presidential election. But all of this last 100 years, that's what we've been doing, registering voters and educating voters so that citizens are involved. And we're open, we're nonpartisan, and we're open to all peoples age 16 and older. Not just women, of course. Not just women, no. And we have men members, too. Even though the organization is nonpartisan, you do encourage members to be politically active. So what are some of the things that you're doing currently to kind of push people to create an opinion? Well, I think Cindy can talk about what we're doing now especially, but I want to make it clear that we are nonpartisan in that we don't support candidates and we don't support parties, but we do have issues that we do support and advocate for. And that's what Cindy is going to talk about, what we're working on now. And we've been doing that the the last hundred years. And let me say also that the League is very careful about what issues they take on. Mm -hmm. And we do it based on studies where we look at both sides of issues and come to consensus Mm -hmm. among ourselves about what positions we'll take. So we've taken positions on lots of issues over the years. Right now, one of the issues we're working on 
is the disenfranchisement of persons who've been convicted of felonies, offenses. Restoring their eligibility to vote is very important. Right now, about 312,000 citizens, Kentucky citizens, cannot vote because they committed a felony at some time in their life. Mm -hmm. That could have been five years ago. That could have been 30 years or 40 years ago. Uh, They have been able to get their privileges back to vote by appealing to the governor, but that has not resulted in very many people regaining their voting rights. So just recently, Governor Bashir signed an executive order that would allow those who have committed nonviolent felonies to get their voting rights back. There's a process going on now to try to determine exactly who those folks are and who can register because of that executive order. But what's important and what we are continuing to work for is a constitutional amendment that would change our Constitution, Mm -hmm. allowing those who have completed their sentencing Mm -hmm. to automatically get their rights restored. At a federal level. No, this is on a state level. level This is a a state issue. Mm -hmm. And so we've been advocating for a number of years for a constitutional amendment, but have not been able to get that passed in Frankfurt. We think people deserve second chances, Mm -hmm. and especially for those, I I talk to people frequently who have committed a felony. Mm -hmm. It's very often a drug or an Mm -hmm. alcohol-related issue. It was a long time ago when they were young, but they've got the felony on their record, and they can't vote. And they're now productive citizens working, paying taxes, and they cannot vote. And that is just simply not fair. It isn't because a lot of the issues do affect them and their families and their ability to get back on their feet. Yes, that's right. And just as an addition right here, we're only one of two states who does that automatically that you lose your Mm -hmm. voting uh, eligibility when you're convicted of a felony. And obviously it's a conviction. Now, with the executive order that Governor Bashir signed, there are obviously a lot of details that have to be ironed out. That's correct. So defining what is, you know, a violent crime and who is eligible. Are you in that conversation? Are you guys at that table? Yes, we are. We are talking with other organizations that are interested in this issue and working to find out exactly what the process will be. We don't want to encourage people to register if, in fact, they're not eligible because that would be a problem for them legally. So we're kind of waiting for the governor's office and the office of the court's to sort that out yeah. so that we can be helpful. We want to be sure that we're we're doing this properly and appropriately. But as soon as we have that information, we'll begin working to identify people and register them. And then in the process, you want to make sure that there's no other barriers that are brought up. Some people feel like they have to hire a lawyer in order to restore their rights or... And that could cost money, and that is a barrier to voting. There is a process called expungement, Mm -hmm. and that completely erases a conviction off of their record. That does cost money, and you do have to have a lawyer. The governor was very specific when he announced his executive order that people would not have to fill out forms in order to be able to vote. And the process in the past has included appealing to the governor, completing several pages of detailed forms. And in one case, under one governor, the governor asked them to write an essay describing why they felt they should be able to vote again. That was very difficult for some folks. I mean, it's hard enough for me to write an essay. And so that was clearly a barrier that that is no longer there. And for these persons who now 
will be eligible. There should not be a barrier. But that's what we're trying to sort out is exactly how they'll do it, how they'll know that they're eligible and not get into any difficulty. And I think it's important for everybody to understand, actually, that being convicted of a felony, that's what happened to you. You you lost your voter eligibility, but you could still go and hold the job. You could live, you could, you know, work and do all those things. But but then why, when democracy depends upon voting, electing our representatives, that's taken away? It really made no sense from the very beginning. And there's a certain loss of dignity with that as well. Yes. So I think restoring it is, is very, very important. I wish you could have seen the faces of people who were at the rotunda in the Capitol mm-hmm. on the day the governor signed that order. Mm-hmm. And there were tears flowing. I'm sure it's a very emotional time for them. Yeah. The Kentucky League of Women Voters, of course, is underneath the national umbrella. Can you talk to us a little bit about the women that were instrumental in, in getting this movement here in Kentucky. What were some of the key issues that propelled the organization's start historically? One of the biggest issues was the temperance movement. And in fact, many of the women who worked to regain Mm -hmm. voting rights came out of organizations that were focused on temperance. Mm -hmm. They saw the devastating effects of alcohol on women and children, And there was nothing they could do about it. Mm -hmm. They were working hard to try to address some of those issues around labor laws, for example, child labor laws, Mm -hmm. employment conditions, those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. But those women who were focused on temperance and those issues began to realize there was no way they could make those changes if they didn't have a voice. And so some of them converted to the suffrage movement. And some did both. But I think that was probably true in Kentucky. And Kentucky was really, shall we say, almost in the forefront in some ways. There, For example, two citizens, well, yeah, women citizens from this area, Lexington, and people will recognize the name of the Clays and the Breckenridges. They were very, of course, active. In Louisville particularly, there were many national meetings that were held in Louisville. There were even some marches in Louisville. Emmeline Pankhurst from England came to Louisville. And then as they formed these organizations, as in the League of Women Voters, again, this education, even just of women, not of all citizens, but of just women. And and what kind of issues are we going to support. Alice Paul, who of course was very prominent in the movement, very much supported and did up until she died in the, I think, late 70s, early 80s, the Equal Rights Amendment. In other words, we think of the Equal Rights Amendment as just something that came out of the 70s, but it had been around for a long time. And so in the 20s, women of the League uh, were supporting the Equal Rights Amendment, which they worked to try to, to get passed. And then there were some issues that we need to be clear about, too, in, in regards to how all of this affected women of color. Yes. And we know what happened is, particularly in the South, the, the goal was to prevent black men from voting. Well, then that happened with even after women got the right to vote to keep black women fr- from voting. And, of course, none of that really changed until the 60s and with the Voting Rights Act of uh, 1965. Uh, shall we say, a history there that's terrific, but also has some bad points to it also. As one barrier dropped, another one lifted up, especially for African-American women. As you say, this happens, you know, through the 60s, and in some ways it still happens until today. Actually, some of the suffragists in the 19th century did not support the 14th Amendment and the 15th and 16th Amendments, particularly the 16th Amendment, giving black men the right to vote because it didn't include women. And yeah. so their their idea was, well, we can't support this unless you're going to include women. And so they still basically still had to fight 70 years to get the right to vote for women. 
So today, the League of Women Voters, what are the top objectives that you would consider is on the forefront of your agenda? Our whole purpose is to make democracy work. We want people to be engaged and active and informed. But let me back up to the other issue that we're working on now that is key for us, and that is redistricting. After every census, the legislature is responsible for drawing the lines for our congressional districts, our United States congressional representatives, and for our state and house, for the United States Congress and those districts, and for our Kentucky House and Kentucky State districts. We are concerned that in the past we have been in court. In 2012, after the legislature did some redistricting, they were taken to court, and it took a year to sort out the problems and get the lines finally drawn in a manner that the court approved. On the national level, the United States Supreme Court has had cases from several states, North Carolina, where the Republicans did some gerrymandering that was not deemed to be appropriate, and in Maryland, where the Democrats had done similar things. The Supreme Court said, this is a state issue. They did not rule, mm -hmm. and so it's up to the states to establish ways in which we can fairly draw those district lines. Mm -hmm. So in Kentucky, the League has taken up this issue. We have created a fair maps coalition of organizations, and we're continuing to identify organizations to join us, basically saying to the legislature, we want you to do redistricting in a fair and open process. Mm -hmm. And I'll just say that in the past, redistricting has basically done behind closed doors mm -hmm. by two or three powerful people, and nobody knows has known what happened until it was done and signed. And we think that the public should have some input and should know what's going on. Dee, do you want to talk a little bit about what our, our proposed bill would do? Yes, we've actually proposed a bill, and that was the press conference that we had on Monday in the rotunda of the Capitol. And what we're talking about here is sort of two parts. It would take a constitutional amendment to change so that we could have an independent commission that would draw the lines. and. It's very difficult to get a constitutional amendment on the ballot. Yeah. So what we've opted for with this bill is to have an advisory commission. And while the legislature, that is the legislators, would be involved in appointing people to the commission, it would have both Republicans and Democrats, but it would also have independents. What we want to do is to have, as, as Cindy has just said, have public hearings all over the state, have citizens involved, how they can speak up about their particular districts. You know, one of the issues is we have all these counties. We have 120 counties. Sometimes the counties get divided up, which is allowed, but they get divided up in terrible ways. For example, in Jefferson County, in Middletown, which is one of our communities, that's fairly geographically combined. They have a history. They have a line that goes right down the middle of the community. And so you have people on one side of the street that are represented by one person and people on the other side by another. Scott County has some issues. There's lots of issues in eastern Kentucky, western Kentucky, the area of Warren County where Bowling Green is. Again, these sort of gerrymandered, drawn maps. And this isn't an easy process, but now with technology and computers, it can be looked at. And again, if people are involved, 
while they can still complain afterwards, they were involved, and, and we want the legislature to hear us, and that's what this commission would do. Now, ultimately, the legislature would still make the final decision based upon our recommendations, but that way it's open, it's transparent, it's what's being done basically all over the country with either independent commissions or these advisory commissions, and we think that's the way for people to really be engaged in government. One of the key comments that I have about that and that our president mentioned the other day is that citizens should be electing their representatives mm -hmm. and not the other way around. That was the way it was intended. And unfortunately, gerrymandering began way back in the 1700s, actually, when it was very clear to bright legislators, oh, I could keep my seat if I drew these lines so these people could vote for me. Yeah. And that's just not fair, no matter how redistricting comes out. If the process is fair, people can support that and feel confident in it. But if yeah. it's clearly not fair, then you have a loss of confidence in your government and your government officials. And you have a loss of confidence in a more of a rift, I guess, yes, you can say. Yes. The other point I would make is if legislators create really, really safe districts mm -hmm. so that you are so safe in your seat, you don't have to compromise, mm -hmm. then you end up with more gridlock and more animosity in your your state houses. So that's what we're after is to get some balance mm -hmm. and to be sure all the issues are addressed fairly and openly with both sides of the issues represented as our decision makers make important decisions for us. And actually, we should have been paying attention to this a long time ago. Again, so this wouldn't have happened in 2010 or in 2000. Uh, and we understand that. But moving forward, let's make sure this doesn't you know, happen again. And as Cindy indicated, both parties, the major parties, uh, are guilty of this. They've been, as one, one of the representatives said, they've been bad actors. And this has happened, as in pointed out, in Maryland and in North Carolina. So that's what we're pushing. And, this and is of really course, we focus. want this to be based on population and not the general opinion of a specific area. Yeah, exactly. Us. Digging into what we know happened in the past, literally digging into with sort of a scalpel into precincts and trying to carve out voters that would support the incumbent or support your friends, that type of thing. So other than redistricting, you are instrumental in getting the word out about the census and people's engagement in the census. The census is really important because... Billions of dollars from the federal government mm -hmm. come to states based on their populations. Mm -hmm. I understand that 10 years ago, lots and lots of children were not included. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure why that's the case, but it's important that every single person, every child, every adult, every senior citizen, everybody is counted. And so when people get their mailer with census questions, it's critical that they fill that out and send it in. If someone comes to their door, it's very important that they answer those questions and provide good, accurate information. What I wanted to add, too, is the Constitution provides for all people, that's what the wording is, people to be counted, and that's critical. Uh, some people want to point out, oh, well, then, you know, then states who have you know, this whole issue of undocumented people. But we have lots of people who live in states legally who are not necessarily citizens but work here under all kinds of various arrangements and regulations, et cetera. And it's important for all people to be counted so that, in fact, these dollars can be given out in the way that they should be. 
And certainly the education of children is is an issue for us also. And of course, this year, as library staff, we were told that for the first time, people can actually fill out the census online. So that's another, another aspect that people can use to do that. So how does someone get involved with the league? If you look up League of Women Voters Kentucky or League of Women Voters Louisville, and there's we have a Murray group. I don't know if they have a separate. I don't, I don't think they have they a separate do. website. You can get all kinds of information. But I, I know Cindy wants to give the exact. Make sure about the website. And we tout that when we speak. For example, I'm going to be speaking at some of the the libraries in Louisville have what's called Cafe Louis, mm-hmm. and so they have provision for the state legislators as well as our Metro Council people to come on a Saturday. So, for example, my turn is to talk to the main library people uh, in March, and we're we're always giving out information about joining the league, how you can join, and students can join free. So that's something that's that's, that's nice. happened in the last couple of years, yes. Here in Lexington, we've enjoyed the partnership that we have with the League of Women Voters. They do, during election years, invite candidates to right. of, on forums, and, and exactly. it's a really good way for people to, to get to know who they're voting for, who they want, right. might want to vote, and the issues that are out there. So right. it's it's been very, very informative. So if, if our listeners are interested, we will always have the YouTube videos of those forums on our YouTube channel. Yeah, both Lexington and Louisville, and, the, and of course the State League in regards to the big issues, in regard to the forums, the candidates. We had, what, how many this time? Like, I guess three or four. And then we've had one in Louisville for Metro Council. We had 13 uh, fall before last. And then, of course, we have school board forums. Let me just say how much the league here in Lexington appreciates our partnership with the library. Yeah, Um, we do too. The staff has been very helpful in videotaping and putting it up on YouTube. So if people can't get down to the library on the evening or afternoon of the event and actually meet the candidates, they can watch anytime, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and see the candidates. And so we really, really appreciate that. The website for the Lexington League is lwvlexington.com. And there are lots of good information there, um, as well as the opportunity to join online. And I think D, the Louisville League, uh, you could join online also. Yes, and it's blwvlouisvillethen.com. Right. We are always looking for volunteers to help register voters. One of the most heartwarming things we do is register voters at immigration mm-hmm. ceremonies, uh, naturalization yeah. ceremonies. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm sorry. Great. And there's nothing more heartwarming than mm-hmm. to watch new citizens, you know, so proud that yeah. they are now a citizen. And many of them didn't have that right. That's uh, right. Previously, where they yeah, came from. Right. Yes, Correct. exactly. Yeah, yeah. And we register high school students, too. Mm-hmm. And so th- we're doing that. This We did it this, in the, this past fall. We're doing it this spring. And we're also working through this Kentucky State Department of uh-huh. Education as well as at, at UK. It's got this whole program, What's a Vote Worth? One of the things that we're doing to engage young people in Lexington is a new project called the We Vote Campaign. And it will be a competition among the high schools, all the high schools in Lexington, to get large percentages of their students registered. We'll be engaging students in the process, and we're pretty excited about it. Oh, that's another another layer of rivalry between the high schools, not <laughs> just football right. and soccer. That's right. so. Well, and people need to understand that if you're going to be 18 before the election, for example, in November, you can still register right now. Yeah, and that's right. important. To and we also know that the habit of voting 
starts early. And if you start early, you're more likely to continue to vote. If you wait until you're older, you're less likely to show up every time if there's an election. So we'd like to engage students early. It's interesting how we engage people, too. For example, we had our state convention in Hopkinsville last summer. And when we were registering at the hotel, we asked the woman who was, you know, checking us in, are you registered to vote? And she said, oh, yes. And then she said, oh, but, you know, I haven't voted. Mm -hmm. And we're like, oh. And so you can imagine we had a great conversation about, you know, paying attention and getting engaged and voting because she was registered. What is this talk about purging people that have not voted in in years? Mm -hmm. Is that on your radar at all? One of the problems when people move is they don't think to, especially if they move out of state, they don't think to unregister in their home state and they move and register someplace else. And we've heard legislators say when they walk their precincts, they'll have two or three names Mm -hmm. in an address of people. And the folks that are there don't even know the names of the other people. Mm -hmm. So there is a need to clean up the voting rolls. We would acknowledge that. But we also want it to be done very carefully so that people who just haven't managed to get out to vote but are still living and and registered Mm -hmm. would be able to do that. So there is a need to clean up the rules, but it has to be done carefully. Yeah, there's some rules and regulations about it, some constitutional sort of requirements, you know, notice and what kind of notice. There's a big scandal about it in both Georgia and in Ohio this past year. And so the league actually was involved in to help write a letter to the Secretary of State and to the Board of Elections about how that was being done. Uh, so that's our our big concern. Yes, you know, if you've moved, like, for example, I've lived in my house eight years. We got a notice because of the people that, and I know that they've moved to Florida. So that needs to be done, but it needs to be done right and not just in an effort to get rid of voters. Before we end the the podcast, I really wanted to touch on how has the civic engagement changed over the years? Um, Do you find that people just are more engaged when there's more turmoil or when things are kind of status quo? I think it's important to understand, and for example, Cindy mentioned we are an organization of volunteers. So part of what's happened, I think, with all volunteer organizations is if you go back to the 60s up through to maybe the early 70s, as more and more women entered the workforce and entered the workforce full-time, that affected all nonprofit volunteer organizations because women before that were able to be engaged. And so maybe turmoil, yes, creates engagement. But I think there was just across the country a lot of engagement because of women who were volunteers. Then with this more and more women working, we've had to rely upon fewer and fewer volunteers because women are working, they're raising children. So, for example, probably the average age of the legal women voters uh, in the 70s, and which is when I first got involved a little bit and then was also involved in, for example, the Junior League, I would say the average ages were in their maybe even 30s and 40s and some 50s. Well, now, because those women are in the workforce and have children, then our ages have you know gone up to where we're talking about 60s and 70s and 80s of volunteers. But I think what has happened because of the last several years and sort of an awakening in all kinds of areas, not just politics, but you've got the environment, I think, that people become more in tune with. All those kinds of things, I think, have awakened people of all ages. And so more and more people are involved. And I think people are understanding that your vote 
really does count because those are the people that are making decisions that affect your life. They affect your paycheck. They affect your children's schools. They affect the air that you breathe, all those kinds of things. War and whether your sons and daughters are going off to fight wars. I have a son who's in the Army, and he's been deployed since 2003. He's been deployed 13 times. Yeah. Now, that's his career, so that's part of what he his expectation, but still— you can imagine how that affects people. So yes and no as to the turmoil. I think people have always been engaged, but more and more as you look at all of these big issues. And then you have to add globalization so that, you know, our view of just, is Lexington affected by Beijing? Yes. Of course it is. Yes, of course it is. And of course, you also have to take into consideration social media and yes. there's other ways to be engaged overall. So yeah. thank you so much for coming on our podcast. I know it's a busy time for you guys. I thought it was really important to bring you guys on, given that it's such an important year in our political process. We do talk a lot about history on this podcast, but it's also important to record and make sure that our current history is, is recorded. So thank you so much, Dee and, and Cindy. We're so happy to have you on. Thank you so much. Yes, for could we invite us. you to something? I invite citizens to. Of course, yeah. We're having a league day at the Capitol, which is February the 13th, 13th and we'll be in the rotunda. And so citizens should show up, come. Help uh, us celebrate our yeah. 100th anniversary. Right. So 100 years for the suffrage of women yes. and 100 years of the league. Yes, That's exactly. So it's really pretty special. Yeah, it is. It is. Thank you again so much. You're okay. welcome. Thanks for listening to Tales from the Kentucky Room, a podcast brought to you by the Central Library's Kentucky Room staff at the Lexington Public Library. If you enjoyed listening, please take a minute to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. If you have any questions about local history or genealogy research, you can visit us in the Kentucky Room to use our collection and newspaper microfilm, or you can email us at elibrarian at lexpublib.org. That's elibrarian at lexpublib.org. I'm Miriam, and we'll be back with another trip down Lexington's memory lane.